Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. Big row this week over academic freedom and free speech. We'll get across that. OFS is digging around on franchising. And can universities deliver the people that the NHS needs? It's all coming up. Words are all we have at the moment. And we all feel that, I think, very, very acutely. While at the same time, words themselves are incredibly subject to interpretation. And interpretation very much depends on on where you're coming from and your view. But universities... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here to help us get familiar with this week's developments, as usual, three fabulous guests. Uh, in St Andrews, Sally Mapstone is Principal and Vice-Chancellor at the University of St Andrews and President of Universities UK. Sally, your highlight of the week, please. This week, the University of St Andrews held an event in Control Room A in the gloriously refurbished Battersea Power Station. I found myself being photographed in front of a control panel labelled Direct Coupled Exciter, which sounds faintly Gwyneth Paltrow, but frankly, I think I've been called worse. Well, we, will, we must try and get hold of that photograph and put it in the show notes. Uh, in Mapley Park, Paul Gradrix is Registrar at the University of Nottingham. Paul, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week was actually given to me by, by you, Jim, only yesterday, which is the publication of the latest seminal university league table on the universities with the closest proximity the highest number of gregs so it is the ultimate takeaway uh league table i'm so excited right, excellent stuff and in cleethorpes this week david kernohan is deputy editor at wonky dk your highlight of the week please well i mean halloween's always a delight or goth christmas as i like to call it i've been turning i've been turning up at the office of the registrars of local universities claiming I'm coming from the OFS. It's been fantastic. (laughs) Perhaps more on that later. So, yes, we start this week with Michelle Donnellan. The former universities minister and current Secretary of State for Science was busy at the weekend, Paul. She certainly was. And there's always a a kind of slight feeling of anxiety when you get, uh, uh, you see a letter from a Secretary of State published at the weekend. You know it's serious. So Michelle Donnellan wrote to uh, UKRI at the weekend, expressing uh, in very strong terms her outrage about appointees to Research England's EDI Advisory Committee had been sharing some extremist views on social media about the conflict in the Middle East. So it was a quite expansive letter, actually. Um, And she was also uh, expressing real concern about whether UKRI had been going beyond the requirements of equality law in ways which added burden and bureaucracy to funding requirements, as she puts it, but also with little evidence of the effectiveness of its initiative. So, um, and there's promise from her of uh, of more to follow. There was a, a similar line taken by Policy Exchange at the weekend as well. 
Um, and I mean, it's interesting because she demanded a response from UKRI by close of play on Monday. They actually took an extra 24 hours to do it, published it on Tuesday, um, and have uh, announced that they are suspending the work of that group. They're doing a, a thorough investigation. There's a lot of detail gone into, into this. And there will be, um, as the um, uh, director put it, an evidence principled response from the UKRI board. So there's an awful lot going on here. There's a bit of culture war. There's a bit of challenge to, to EDI orthodoxy. There's the Middle East conflict thrown in, and there's free speech challenges. So it's it's real, and everyone is getting very exercised about it. So it's a it's a really interesting set of developments. Yes, fascinating. Now, uh, before before we uh, have a chat about this, let's have a listen to Michelle Donnellan, who was on uh, doing the broadcast round on Sunday, uh, and here's uh, Michelle on Sky News. But Research England's an independent body. Mm. Uh, you're not alleging that this individual has broken the law. No. So is it for ministers to be telling an independent body who they should have on a committee because so, you don't like what she said? So I think if you read the letter, I didn't say you must take the following steps. I said that I strongly recommend and I... Um, well, and I when, I get a, uh, when I get uh, a message no, from no, the Secretary no. of State saying not, I strongly well, recommend, UK I'm going to read well, it as well, get okay. on with it. Well, Do let's it. look at UKRI's response. UKRI's own response was that they too are deeply concerned and shocked about this and that they are going to take action and investigate it. Now, they wouldn't be okay. saying that if they thought everything was hunky-dory. And I don't think that anybody would suggest that is reasonable, that the, um, okay. the, the promotion of terrorism is OK. Now, Sally, there's a couple of things here, aren't there? There's, there's both Michelle's letter, but then also the instant UKRI response, and both got quite a bit of criticism from academic staff. Yeah, as Paul said, the, there are a number of moving parts to this, and I think it's really important that we, we actually give it some reflection um, and some considered comment rather than everybody rushing to super sound bites as soon as something like this has happened. Um, not least because we're talking about EDI issues in the widest of contexts here, both in terms of the political situation in Gaza and the kind of approach to achieving inclusive cultural change that all parties are still saying they remain committed to. So there are a number of, of moving parts. There's the investigations of the remarks and the appointments process that are now going to take place. There are inevitably the knock-on effects of the Secretary of State's intervention in terms of future appetite for taking on public uh, service. And there's also, as has been said, the culture of freedom of speech. Um, we need to let the investigation process take the course it needs to take and then come back to this, I think, when when um, tempers have cooled a bit and the dust has settled. DK, you've been looking at the sort of, you know, I guess, the rules of the game here in terms of the relationships between ministers and UKRI and so on and so on. So if you think, like, I mean, all of us at some point in our life, we would have had a really terrible boss that just does arbitrary things um, just because they happen to be annoyed by something they've just seen or read. I mean, obviously, this didn't apply to yourself and uh, me these days, Jim. But, you know, back in the day, we've had to deal with this. The first thing you do in such situations, you ask, what actually am I accused of? Second thing you do is you're like, okay, what are the rules? And the third thing is, what's the process that we need to follow? So the response that we got from Ottoline Laser at UCRI, um, I think it commendably disguised just how pissed off she was um, with all of this, really. Um, but she immediately took it back, okay, we're going to follow the standard protest, and we're going to follow the standard uh, process, and we are going to do things by the book, which is the best things you can do in such situations. Uh, the powers that the minister has to direct or advise 
Ukri, as set out in Hira, are complex. There are very few ways in which she can get rid of an advisor on an advisory panel that she happens not to like that morning. She can sack the chair. She can sack the chief executive. Uh, and it's actually kind of nice to see that she didn't decide to do that. Um, so in terms of what's going to happen next, my suspicion is that the Ukri response has been very well considered to basically take the heat out of all this. I mean, rather than making it a crisis, something unusual has to done, has to be done. They've taken it to the normal processes. It's notable that Michelle asked that the group would be disbanded immediately. It's actually been suspended immediately, which is a big difference. Uh, this is not a group that meets particularly often, so it's probably not even uh, going to mean the pause of more than one meeting. Uh, they're going to run a process. It's going to report to the board, and then the board's going to make a decision. There's a lovely line in the response. It's going to be an evidenced and principled decision, which if you've read letters from civil servants before, you know precisely how pointed those words are being used in that situation. Yes, in, in, interesting. Now, 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 Paul, obviously there's a there's a bunch of process stuff here, but there's also the kind of principle stuff. And in, and in some ways, this row is, is not dissimilar to some of the rows that have been going on for the past few weeks around the line between uh, kind of free speech and equality and diversity and harassment and so on. And again, we've got a little clip here, this time from Ian Mansfield from Policy Exchange. So I would go back to what Policy Exchange said in its note, which is these are politicised and contested views. So you wouldn't I go would, as far as what Michelle Donlan said in her letter? I wouldn't want to comment on that. I'm not a lawyer in that respect. I would take it back to, though, that this is not about freedom of speech. This is about suitability to serve on a public committee advice on £2 billion annually of, of taxpayers' spend. It is absolutely right that academics, of course, in their role as academics, can say whatever they like. But if you put yourself forward to a senior public committee, particularly on equality and diversity, public bodies should be selecting people who can command broad confidence, who can bring the community together, not those who are pushing very highly contested views, such as, for example, that Israel is committing genocide. I mean, that's interesting, Paul, isn't it? Because as well as that debate about, you know, whether the actual tweets that were retweeted or the comments were, um, you know, okay, there's something else that, that, that Ian's asserting here about the character of people who lead, you know, public functions, you know, th this idea that people on a committee shouldn't have controversial views. Does that stand up? I think, I think it's really, uh, difficult to be honest because if we start trawling through everyone who's on an advisory board for any public body whatsoever in order to establish what they may or may not have expressed a view on uh, in the past that some people may or may not find uh, distasteful then we're, we're going to run out of people to put on public bodies um, I, I just think it's it feels to me it feels to me that this this is being used as a, a vehicle for um, raising all sorts of issues and trying to find ways to articulate um, uh, positions where um, differences exist, right? So it, it's being used for, for purposes other than that, which it is uh, uh, described as, uh, as intended. So, um, you know, it, it so happens that the, 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 the Secretary of State alighted on this and policy exchange alighted on the, these individuals. What will this will mean is that everyone who gets appointed to an advisory body in future will 
have every social media thing that they've ever done scrutinized. And I don't think that's actually particularly healthy or productive uh, for, for our sector. Now, obviously, if people are in the position where they are um, in as I think you put it, you know, position of trust and responsibility, then they have to follow the Nolan principles. They have to sign up to the terms of reference of the board that they're part of, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, that doesn't mean that they can never have said anything about anything. So I think it's really, really difficult and murky, but it is, I think, being um, exploded in a way that's terribly unhelpful at this particular time and used for other purposes. And as Sally said, we need to just calm down here, take a bit of time and that process will work its way through. Meanwhile, the next argument will be along before you know it. Yeah, and, and I, mean, I mean, interesting, I mean, you know, what will be the next argument? The, at the bottom of the letter on, at the weekend, Sally, there was this uh, other sort of, you know, kind of ominous preview on um, really, I mean, what looked like a kind of codified reference to the ref and the people and culture debate. Where, where, where's that uh, for you? Um, so first of all, um, I, I think we should also remember what the Research England group is actually about, because if we are going to open this up to talk about broader EDI issues, we should remember the, the basis of the group, which is to support Research England in creating and sustaining the conditions for a healthy, dynamic, diverse and inclusive research and knowledge exchange system in English universities. Probably also important to note that this particular expert advisory group doesn't actually have a brief in relation to rest. So I would separate those two issues. There's the broader role of this group um, in advising on equality, diversity and inclusivity. Then there's the whole question of the, the people, culture and environment set up for the REF, which, as we know, is being consulted on, is being looked at because there are some proposals to uh, open it up and give it a greater weighting in the future of the REF. But that is still very much under consultation and consideration. So I think it would be um, an error for this particular issue to get conflated with the research people uh, culture and in, uh, people culture and environment element of the of the ref yes they're in the same area but they're essentially different issues hmm. now dk um the other thing that's happened um as we went to press or, or whatever the phrase is when you're recording a podcast um is as well as, a, as the secretary of state yesterday uh, talking about anti-semitism on campus we've had a kind of announcement on twitter from uh, rob health on this morning yeah, so this is Rob Halfen. He's breaking out the number emojis in his way. Um, this is also linked to another article by Gillian Keegan in Conservative Home that we mentioned in the Daily on Wednesday. Uh, so the, in brief, the five things that Robert Halfen is asking for, he seems to be couching it in terms of things somebody else should do rather than things that he's going to make happen. Um, but, you know, he says he will be calling for visas to be withdrawn from international students who incite racial hatred. He will be obviously writing a letter to VCs, making sure they act decisively against staff and students involved in anti-Semitism. It's interesting that in all of this, we're not seeing ministers noting the IHRA definition. Um, I I think that's a really interesting development. Uh, he's going to meet with the Office of the Students to chat about what it does in these things. It's, he's obviously forgotten the fact that the Office of the Students already has a misconduct uh, process and uh, policy and anti-Semitism is, is covered within that, but it's nice for him to be reminded. Uh, he is going to reiterate in all his discussions that criminal acts should be referred to the police. This is something that's always been the case. 
And the last one, he's going to explore establishing an anti-Semitism charter in HE. Uh, he wants university to sign up to a thing which demonstrates a commitment to tackling anti-Semitism. Now, I'm pretty sure we've done stuff like this before. There are charters on various things that um, universities have signed up to commit to. It's the first level of uh, policy intervention is what universities do if they don't want the OFS to get involved in a condition of registration. Um, it's not clear why he would want a charter on top of the commitments that are already in the work on harassment and misconduct. And indeed, in that work, uh, there was initially a charter on misconduct, and then it was um, decided that it just wasn't good enough. So there now has to be um, regulatory action. It's all, it all, uh, increasingly the impression I get with Robert Halfen is he's not really on top of a lot of this stuff. He's got his interest in this space. And on the rest of it, he just does tend to guess. Um, this does not feel like an intervention from somebody who is absolutely in the um, nitty gritty day to day of this stuff. It is very much a top down, I reckon. I mean, Paul, I mean, I guess there's a couple of ways of looking at this, aren't there, Paul? I'm, I'm, I mean, on the one hand, perhaps we might assume that. Rob Halfon will meet with OFS and will be assured that the um, consultation on harassment and sexual misconduct has been on and will shortly conclude and we'll, we'll get an output from that and that will cover anti-Semitism. But on the other hand, there's a danger, isn't there, that, you know, that criticism that everybody throws at uh, Jeremy Corbyn for both sidesing everything, you know, there's a danger the sector sounds like that or office for students sounds like that. And if there is an anti-Semitism problem, there should be some anti-Semitism focus, shouldn't there? I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I I think that the, the real challenge here is that, um, as uh, as David alluded to, is that the gap between the ministerial office and what's happening on the ground in uh, universities, on campuses, in student unions, etc., is enormous, right? And th- there is always pressure on um, you know government ministers to you know to to act like something needs to be done, and um, and you know you you start casting around it at times of challenge and, and difficulty to find things that look like they will make a difference. And, you know, that's, you know, it's not to be criticised. It's part of the job, right? So I think that's fair enough. The difficulty is that I think, as you alluded to earlier, Jim, all of the tools are already in the armory, really. Um, and it's not like universities aren't grappling with these kind of issues on a, on a daily basis anyway. Right? There have been challenges over many, many years, which we, you know, we've all dealt with and sought to deal with in, in the right way, um, where there has been any um, activities uh, of anti-Semitism. Universities have, have dealt with them really, really firmly, I think. And it, the challenge is that they do keep coming back and that you, you can't let your... Um, uh, uh, I go off this at all, but they have accelerated undoubtedly in in the past few weeks. So we have to do more, and we are all doing more. But it's a very you know it's on the ground stuff, and it has to be done, and it will be done differently by every university within that overarching legal framework and the regulatory framework we've already got. So I'm sure if there's another chance to come along, we will all um, uh, you know sign up to it. I'm I'm not certain it will actually make a huge difference to the you know the genuinely strong emphasis that people have on challenging these very difficult 
difficult uh, and unpleasant and unsavoury uh, environments that do exist on some university campuses at the moment. Mm. Sally, I mean, I, 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 one of the things that sort of strikes me about this is that, um, you know, if we think about UKRI doing its best to take the heat out of this particular situation, um, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot of focus in this kind of space on good campus relations and trying to take the heat out of um, often very charged environments on campus. Now, that kind of approach might not be for this week or even next week or even next month, but there is, there's something missing, isn't there, here about ministers seeking to try to calm down tension on campus? Possibly, yes. Um, but, but I also think we're in, we need to recognise that we're in an incredibly challenging and for many people, very, very distressing situation at the moment with particular circumstances. And that campus is a dynamic place. Universities are places where people need to be able to debate and discuss really difficult ideas. But they've got to do so in a in a context of tolerance and respect. And in the light of the minister's remarks, I think we also possibly need to remember that November is Islamophobia Awareness Month. That's a, a month aimed at raising awareness about um, our Muslim, Muslim students, uh, while at the same time celebrating their culture and religion and it is it is important that everybody has a, a voice here and and feels listened to but I would want to reiterate Paul's point that universities are doing a huge amount in this space it's really challenging because words are all we have at the moment and we all feel that I think very very acutely while at the same time words themselves are incredibly subject to interpretation and interpretation very much depends on on where you're coming from and your view but universities um, are I'm not going to say they're really good at handling this themselves, but they're used to handling it themselves. And UUK has produced itself a wide range of forms of, of guidance in this area, updated recently, which, to my mind, are much more relevant to what's actually happening on the ground than um, ministerial pronouncements, somewhat, as Paul indicates, from on high, however well intended. Good stuff. Now, uh, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, I'm John Rowlands, and this week I've been blogging for Wonky on a word we seem to have become rather fond of, resilience. I say we, I have reservations. To me, resilience feels like the language of exterior paint finishes and anodized cookware rather than person-centred pedagogy. I also think it sets a bit of an obstacle course for neurodivergent learners who may, like I used to, already feel that they are lacking in an area they perceive others are stronger in. I feel it's a word of digging your heels in and bracing, rather than striding forward confident in who you are. After all, we tend to frame it as resilience from, rather than courage to, which fails to put the person at the centre of their own journey. So check out my blog for more of my views on this false friend of a word, and I'll look forward to your thoughts. Now, next up, OFS has been given some coordinates for its next round of Boots on the Ground, DK. Indeed so. It seems once a year we're going to get a note saying all of the all of the places where the Office for Students are going to look in an attempt to find low quality courses. This has been an ongoing debate for years and years and years, but it does feel like we're now iterating towards what might be a useful intervention. They are going to look specifically at courses in the business and management area that are delivered through subcontractual or franchised uh, uh, partnerships. And they've also got an interest in courses with an integrated foundation year, that that would be full-time first-degree courses. Now, if you are a regular reader of Wonky, as I'm sure you are if you're listening to the podcast, uh, you will know this is something we have been pushing on in a while, 
although by no means would we say that not every franchise arrangement and not every partnership is terrible, there are some examples of students getting a really bad experience through a franchise thing. And this is the first time that the OFS has committed to look at them. Yes. Now, Sally, this is this is tricky stuff, isn't it? Because, you know, in, in many ways, um, presumably OFS can see some things that, that we can't see. So, for example, the Department for Education last week put out some data on um, programmes with an integrated foundation year, but it didn't split out franchise versus non-franchise. So, so the assumption here must be, I guess, that OFS can see things that we can't. Yeah, it, it is tricky stuff. And actually, this is... Um a classic example, it seems to me, of where Wonky really lives up to its name. Um, Because what Wonky has written on this is the kind of thing that when I read it, I feel a sort of faint throbbing around the temples as to whether I can take it it, it all in. So thanks very much for that. But actually, you you have done some really important pioneering work in trying to bring it all together. Yes, I think it is likely that OFS um, can see things that the rest of us can't, 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 can't see in this particular instance. And I would agree with DK that sensibly, there's probably some value in opening this up. But in so doing, let's be proportionate. Let's let's bear in mind that um, foundation provision, franchise provision does have a widening participation element to it. Um, And that when you're putting the quality lens on that, which of course, it's important to do, you've got to do it in that contextualized way. Hmm. I mean, I I mean, Paul, for about four years now, OFS has been saying, well, there are pockets of uh, poor quality courses. Is, has, it, has it found a sort of inside pocket here, potentially? Well, I mean, it's really interesting, this, because I have to say that I think that, um, you know, one of the criticisms I and, and others have, have levelled at the Office for Students and its activities uh, since its inception was that um, it wasn't risk-based enough in its approach. It wasn't focusing on the areas of uh, where there might be the biggest risk to uh, uh, quality and standards and the student experience. Um, but what it has done with this announcement, it seems to me, is actually genuinely say, well, well, look, here's an area of greater risk within our sector, where it is because there is with any um, uh, franchise or indeed validation activity where you have a distance between the um, uh, the awarding body and the delivery body, um, and there is a, a, a gap which has to be filled. So every time you get a step or a, a you know a gap between those two, then you, you're creating greater risk in terms of assuring the quality and the standard of that provision. So it is, the OFS is rightly saying, well, actually, on the on that basis alone, but also on the basis of clearly other information that they might have, and that may be complaints from students, it may be data that we haven't seen that's been provided to them, um, this looks like an area of greater risk. Now, I have to say, for me personally, I don't think that the there's a, you know you'd say that foundation years are per se problematic, right? Um, that's a part of this I don't really see as you know an area of higher risk, but I do think these kind of franchise areas which are predominantly in the business studies area i think and there are large numbers of students following these courses are a topic worthy of investigation so i'm i'm pleased that they're focusing on an area of greater risk in terms of their next set of activities yes i mean i, I mean look on, on the one hand dk you know i mean we we have had i think a, you know, a couple of uh, um, representatives from private providers in the comments on some of the pieces this week saying look 
you know, they, 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 we, we are educating the sort of students that, you know, mainstream HE would never go near. But then on the other hand, you know, the suspicion, I guess, would be that that foundation year data uh, last week, it, insofar as there are worse outcomes and it's all clustered around London, it's all business schools, is that it's these collect this collection of um, kind of private providers that are selling courses uh, on the basis of student finance and so on, the sort of stuff we've talked about before on the site. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to untangle here. We've, first of all, got the issue that students from disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely not to continue their course, more likely not to complete their course, and are more likely not to go on and get a good, solid graduate job at the end of the course. That is just, unfortunately, the way of our society. There's very little that the majority of institutions are able to do to combat that directly, unless you're spending a lot of extra money and taking a lot of extra time to give students the support that, that, that they need to succeed. Um, in terms of the mix, there are obviously some instances where there are providers that are serving underserved areas, that are serving underserved groups, that are doing so in a close and a meaningful collaboration with the people that are awarding that particular um, degree or other qualification that are doing a brilliant job. I just want to make that absolutely clear because I, I know a lot of people that do listen to this, they do work in places that do uh, franchise delivery. There's some outstanding practice there. And as we hinted, there's also some appalling practice. Uh, now, seemingly OFS, as you say, it can see this now. It was supposed to actually publish this data in a dashboard at some point this autumn. I guess it's still technically autumn. We could still be surprised. But it's always been an area of provision that for whatever reason, we've not been able to see. And in um, many institutions, especially those that have expanded their franchise offers substantially in recent years, it's quite difficult to see within an institution the quality of data here that's passing between the delivery partner, the register partner and uh, HESA and the OFS is not great and there are being steps taken to improve that. Um, it is a lot to ask to uh, ask every provider in this situation to justify what they're doing. I'm assuming in the usual way the Office for Students are going to be guided by the data including the data that we currently can't see and are going to focus their attention in places where they can make the most different to individual students yes and then signal now now, now sally I, I mean this this kind of regime this um you know the outcomes don't look great or whatever and then you know a team will go in and look at quality you know that outcomes and quality agenda is to some extent in ofs separate to the sort of widening access agenda and i guess one of the other allegations here is that universities that don't do really you know aren't great on access and aren't great on um disadvantaged students both completing and then getting a graduate job are just entering franchise partnerships to top up their numbers now is that fair that allegation well let's let, let's see what comes out of the ofs investigations it, it seems it seems to me what this whole discussion has shown is that this is an area where um the data is is quite tricky um where there's a lot that we we don't know that we can't see that that clearly so I don't think it's possible to give a straightforward answer to that 
question. Um, I do think it's it, this kind of work from the OFS is is potentially valuable, but let's see the investigations. Let's also appreciate that um, we may need well need to look on a case-by-case basis rather than making aggregated and even sweeping statements. Hmm. But, uh, but, uh, but, but Paul, I guess in principle, if you're a university that does struggle with this stuff, is it, is it legit to then, you know, kind of do this, you know, to, 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 to get your widening access numbers in a, in a good place by entering into these partnerships? Because some people would say, well, look, this is fantastic. This is bringing higher education to bits of the bits of society and bits of the country that wouldn't normally get it via that partnership. Other people would say, well, it's cheating. Yeah, and I, I it's, it's, a, it's a good point. I mean, I, I think that any university that engages in um, a, a franchise or some other um, kind of subcontracting relationship will have all sorts, you know, there will be all sorts of different motivations. And it could be that actually they've been a long-standing partnership with a, with another organization, or it could be that there is a, a definite desire to address um, access and participation in an underserved neighborhood, right? There can be all sorts of motivations for it. Um, and I think that uh, what this investigation will hopefully do is clarify, you know, some, some and share some really good practice in terms of the way the universities have approached that. But the, I don't think any university would go at this, you know, thinking, well, here's, here's a great way to, to get our widening participation numbers up without, you know, without actually, you know, troubling to change our approach. We'll just, you know, subcontract the difficult stuff to someone else and not worry too much about the detail. And we'll also take our cut of fee income uh, for the quality assurance. Thank you very much. I mean, that would be an appalling attitude to take. And, I, you know, I'd be genuinely surprised if any universities actually approach it that way. But as I said earlier, there is risk associated with any kind of subcontracting activity. And there will be some outstanding practice out there. There'll be some poor practice. What we will get to hopefully a better understanding of is, you know, where quality and standards are at risk in these kind of operations and also what to avoid and where there has been poor practice in the past, but where there is good practice too. And and, and, and just before we come off this, Sally, uh, uh, there's, there's, there's some really good work, actually, uh, principally voluntary, but really good work on um, kind of regulating and improving the quality of international agents. Is there a case for kind of extending that work to domestic agents that's a really good that's a really good question and, and again uh, conceivably what we will eventually be able to see from the work that the OFS has under undertaken might possibly give us an indication as to whether that would be a good thing to do so yeah possibly but again let's see what comes out of their work great stuff now every week on the show we look back at how things were and how things came to be with academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe here's the hidden history of HE. So one of the issues du jour is the issue of a commuting university. What are we doing for commuting students? Well, um, one of the biggest reforms in the 19th century was to set up a commuter university. Um, what originally was called the University of London, we know it now as University College London. And it was set up explicitly to be a commuter university because the vices of the residential university, Oxford and Cambridge, were so obvious to everyone that you wanted to avoid that at all costs. So... Um, the pitch comes in a, a staged letter to the Times from Thomas Campbell to Lord Broome, in which he sets out a kind of prospectus for a university. He goes on to, to, to embellish it some more. But the prospectus is, is pretty clear that there's a group of people who are not being catered for in the higher education sector, and they are the middling rich. This is the group we need to go after, he says. These are the people who have some money, 
uh, can't afford the expense of sending their uh, kids, uh, their sons. Uh, sadly, uh, all the stuff is about sons. We can't explore the expense of sending our sons off to university. It will cost you far too much. Uh, so we need something for them to stay at home and commute to university. Now, Campbell works this all out. He works out how many middling rich families are within a two-hour walk of UCL. Uh, uh, so if he puts it in Bloomsbury, he knows how many people, you know, what his catchment is. Um, he sets out what might happen to them. So that they go, they'll come, they'll have breakfast early at home. Uh, they'll come in for several hours, uh, receive instruction. They can uh, stay in the university in that time. And then they'll go home again, uh, always in the hours of daylight, uh, to their parents' houses where the parents will be in charge of them. So, and he says in the letter, their parents might know how every minute of every day of their life was employed. So the idea the parents are completely in charge. Uh, in the original um, sense of the perspectives of the place, he, he imagines a weekly report going home with the students uh, to show what they've done during that week. And the idea is, is to save vast amounts of money uh, for uh, families that might have a couple of thousand pounds a year income. Uh, and this won't be ruinous. Uh, it won't be ruinous in terms of the cost, but also it won't be ruinous in terms of sending your son away where you have no idea what they're doing for eight weeks uh, and all that you might get is bills sent back um, from uh, their ruinous life in Oxford or Cambridge. So you've got much more control of them. It's also really important because what you do on Sunday is your decision. So it doesn't matter what church you go to because it's not the University of London's problem which church you go to on Sunday, so it can avoid the question of religious tests because it's not in charge of your morality. So it doesn't matter to them how you pray. Um, you can get on and do it. So as far as they're concerned, that gets them out of the problem about dissenters, gets them from about uh, Jews. They're in a position where it that's not their problem. So if you can come and study the instruction, your parents are going to look after your morality. That's not our job. So they won't teach religion because there's no need for you to be taught religion because you'll be going to the you know the church of your choice. Um, you won't need to get it from us. Uh, it's full of really um, up-to-date ideas. So in order to get it going, um, they need uh, to set up a company. So it's set up a, a company and it's supposed to have subscribers. And the good news about being a subscriber is that you pay your £100 and then you can send a student. So as a shareholder, you get a guaranteed place at university for your son uh, as a kind of compense for that so that's an interesting prospect um uh, uh, would have been good for the new college of the humanities if they'd gone for that route um so you can set it up the uh, professoriate aren't going to be funded out of um, endowments they're just going to collect the student fees so they're going to be paid out of the student fees uh, so that's how they're going to get funded they're going to get spread across lots more uh, disciplines and to mark the whole thing off um, it emerges very quickly that what they want to do is have much more open study. Uh, Campbell goes on a trip to Berlin to look at the new university there. Uh, he receives correspondence about how the University of Virginia is set up. So he wants to have a much more elective system. Students can study whatever they want. He brings in professors in all sorts of practical subjects. So it's not just learning the classics. Uh, and so he sets up a, a different kind of understanding of how that should be. Pretty soon, there's a reaction. Because how can this place uh, 
be saying it's going to offer a degree if there's no religious instruction, if no one has a sense of the morals of, of, the, of the men that have passed through it. So the kind of reactionary uh, approaches the Tories set up their own campaign to set up a college uh, and they get the King's support, which is why King's College um, gets to be set up in opposition to the University of London and it sets up to do pretty much the same kind of thing, commuting students, um, a wider range of uh, subjects, but with religious education at, at its heart. So they want to be a different kind of setup, but within the sphere of the Church of England, because that's important to them. So the two colleges get off um, issuing certificates because they don't have degree awarding powers, because Parliament won't award degree awarding powers to um, uh, UCL, as we as we know it now. Uh, and so eventually the compromise comes in 1836 that the University of London is set up as a kind of effectively a government department to award degrees. So if you were looking for an exciting parallel with the OFS, uh, the OFS validation powers uh, to set up and, and approve colleges that come to it and say, can, can we have a degree? You could say, well, there's a parallel in 1836 in terms of the original University of London. What's interesting, of course, is the University of London has to say what's in the degree. So that takes away some of the reforming uh, zeal of, of what had been at UCL because they now have to conform to this, this new uh, BA degree that the University of London puts together. But from that springs, A, the ability for someone to be taught at a college that isn't part of uh, the direct University of London, so that enables places all over the country and in turn all over the empire to teach the University of London degree. Uh, but it also means the University of London can start to think about other subjects. So it starts to think, well, what would it look like to have a, just a science degree? Uh, and so they can start to think about that. And so there's a petition to have a, the first science degree. They can start to think about what it would look like. Um, there's a petition to set up a social science degree. So they can start to expand the range of subjects uh, that come into the university and specialisms can develop from. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And finally this week, the future of the NHS is at stake, Sally. Yes, uh, a campaign, Universities Powering the NHS, was announced this week by Universities UK with the Medical Schools Council and the Council of Deans of Health. 
It focuses on what big changes are going to be needed in recruitment, support and retention of staff across medicine, across nursing and allied health professions in order to deliver the NHS long-term workforce plan in England over a 15-year period. And it's good, frankly, to see some serious long-term planning in a context where short-termism and last-minuteism has often dominated. But the challenges are really manifest, um, diminishing student recruitment, low morale and dropout rates, uh, an aging healthcare academic workforce, and academic placement ability their availability. They're just some of the issues that will need to be addressed with some bold and innovative thinking. And behind all of this, of course, are questions of the apt use of resource and funding. But public sentiment is said to be clear that this is where it wants to see investment and growth. So this is a great opportunity, I would say, for universities positively to profile their capacity to generate that. Now, now, now DK, you've done quite a bit of work in, in the past on, on, on some of these sort of capacity issues. When when there's this kind of work workforce demand, just just give us a kind of sense of some of the pinch points. So the big pinch point here is the availability of capacity within the NHS to offer placements and to offer the kind of training places, um, junior doctor uh, places pre-registration nurse places that you need if you're going to progress into a, um, a professional career after you've done your uh, uh, course. There's more training after that, and there is training during the course. That happens in hospitals. If you've been anywhere near a hospital in the last couple of years, you will know how strained capacity is in the NHS. This is part of the reason that we're looking at the ex- um, expansion and then the number of doctors, nurses, and other professionals. And at the moment, we are really struggling to find the staff there to deliver the placements. Uh, the other pinch point is the um, ap- the attitude among applicants towards these courses. We saw a big boom in medical healthcare and related applications during the pandemic. Also, I mean, obviously, this staff was at the, the um, top of everyone's mind. Everybody was looking at the hard and hugely important work that healthcare professionals were doing, and they were like, yeah, that's the kind of career I would like. But demand has really, really, really tailed off since that time. Uh, the perception is there's been a survey from Elsevier uh, that applicants and students are seeing um, the state of the system they'd be going into. There's a, a suggestion 75% of medical students are concerned about the shortage of uh, clini- uh, clinicians and the way that will affect their career. And there are 65% of nursing students that are worried particularly about the burnout that they're likely to face that they see the professionals that are working with them uh, facing. Um, and add to that, you know, if we're going to have more nurses, more doctors, more professionals in the system, we need to commit to paying their salaries long term. That is a big bill. And although there's been extra money alongside the workforce plan for training, there's not been the corresponding uplift to the overall NHS budget that would cover salaries to these people. So that's another pinch point. Hmm. Paul, I, I, I guess, you, you know, one of the things that 
we often reflect on is the extent to which a kind of higher education provider is able to be in control of the entire experience. There's, you know, there's bits of that in that franchising conversation, bits of that to some extent in the, in, in the free speech and harassment and sexual misconduct conversation. But, you know, one of the things on the ground that I often hear is because placements are so hard to get hold of that the, the, the kind of power dynamic between a provider and a placement provider isn't where you would want it to be if students are feeding back that they're having a poor experience or perhaps are, are experiencing low levels of harassment or, or are just, you know, not really experiencing supernumerary status and so on and so on. Where, where, where how, how can we kind of find a way through that when we know that we've got to, you know, commit to improving and, and supplying the future NHS workforce? Yeah, that's, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, there are, there are awful lot of challenges associated with, with both securing and then managing and then ensuring the right quality of placements for, for students. And obviously it's a fundamental part of their, uh, their learning experience and their training and ultimately their qualification in whatever health profession it is. And it's, it's really difficult. It's time consuming. It requires an awful lot of effort. But I think that what, what all of this points to, and it's a really good report from universities UK, but it, it, what it does is really reinforce the need to, to get the big picture right here. And it does require a genuinely, and it's easy to talk about long term plans, but these, it doesn't get more long term than this, right? We have to ensure that we have a really broad pipeline of future um, doctors and healthcare workers coming through the system who are able to get high quality placements. And there are lots of them. They're properly supported and supervised on those placements and they're able to contribute to the NHS in the future. In order for that to happen, though, there are an awful lot of different points that have to come together. And, you know, in terms of the way that the, the country works at the moment and the way that the NHS has been, uh, you know, challenged over the past decade in particular, um, pre and post COVID, uh, it just feels like we're a very long way from that. But universities have a critical role to play in enabling all of this to happen. We can't do it ourselves. It is really challenging at the moment. And one of the reasons student demand is dropping off is because of the, the perceptions of the health service in the public domain and are looking like a, a, you know, an employer that's under massive stress. And, you know, the idea of entering a profession where it's going to be incredibly hard for the rest of your career. Um, and, you know, there are pay issues as well as conditions. I mean, none of that makes it a really big sell. However, you know, the potential, the untapped demand is still there, I think. But it does require concerted action across the health service, across government, across universities, um, in order to, to bring all this together. But it requires a long-term plan. And the NHS and the universities in relation to the NHS have never been in a position, really, where we've actually had a long-term view of even the most simple um, of healthcare contracts, where everything is done short-termist for a few years at a time. And that's no way to run a, run a health service but it's going to cost money and it's going to take time mm. sally the other day i was talking to someone about ai there's obviously this big ai summit on this week that michelle donnellan is busy with and um you know i was saying look we can't prove whether students have cheated or not these days and they were saying well you know maybe we just have to accept that and um, you know they're only cheating themselves and i said hold on <laughs> we don't want them to be cheating themselves if they're if they're about to be a medical professional right we definitely do want them to kind of show a, a standard but but i guess you know one of the critiques of this report that i have seen on social media from some of the suspects that we might have been talking about on the podcast earlier is that there's too much HE in the training of healthcare professionals and we need to take some of the HE out. We need 
you know, much more of an apprenticeship focus. We need, you know, the old arguments about nursing doesn't need to be a degree subject. Have we over-credentialized the health service and then created, uh, you know, a rod for our own back? Or should we celebrate the kind of improvement in in skills and knowledge of healthcare professionals? Yeah, let me first of all take you back to the AI point, because I think I I very much endorse what Paul was saying. But I do think there's a a further element in, in all of this, which is tech actually. And an AI tech is increasingly being used in, in training. And I do think one of the ways in which we need to be thinking about um, placements in future is in terms of technology enabled placements, simulated practice learning, those sorts of areas. I recall a few years ago when, for example, holograms were being started to be used in anatomy teaching and everybody said this is anathema, it can't be done, shouldn't be done, etc. But in fact, the use of, of AI is really, really increasing in training and, and, and teaching. And I think we have to accept that this, this landscape is, go- is going to change a lot. Um, and precisely, actually, because universities play such an important role in the research that lies behind these systems, I think there's no doubt that universities will continue to have to play a really significant element in this space. But you're also right that we need to look at the, the types of routes that, that come through um, into the health service and, and assess what the most Um, valid and viable combination is. But to me, it's absolutely crucial that universities are at the heart of this. They're going to drive the increase in clinical practice numbers. Um, They're going to lead a lot of the uh, the refreshing of of coursework that goes into the, the training. So let's not use this as an opportunity to knock universities who are trying to actually really get on board with some long term planning, which actually, let's face it, universities are, are used to doing. Government seems to have got out of the, the habit of. Um, and I think it will be necessary to look really sensibly at the most effective forms of delivery. But from my perspective, universities have got to be front and centre of this as it goes forward. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHG, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Sally, Paul, DK, Mike, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. Uh, We'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. Wonky.